0: Welcome everybody, good afternoon, thank you for coming along to our um, teleconference today. I'd like to welcome as well Ivan Paul, lawyer. Um, We spent some time with Ivan previously at uh, our earlier teleconference, essentially running through the elements of um, the relationship between the franchisee and franchisor. We covered quite a lot of items. What I'd like to do this afternoon um, is initially run through um, the, the question that we proposed which is, should I or could I use a licence agreement? So we'll run through that, and then when that's been completed, we'll, we'll wrap up the, uh, the previous session going through the essential elements of the, the franchise agreement and so forth. So, Ivan, thank you very much for coming along. Um, yep. What I'd like to do is just ask anyone on the line there just to press star 6. That will mute their line. That way we won't get any background interference. Um, once you've done that, that's fine. And then if you have any questions at all, you're welcome to uh, raise them at the end of the teleconference or to drop a note by email and we'll uh, ensure that we respond to them. So just to start the ball rolling, Ivan, with regards to the elements of uh, a licence and a franchise agreement, I wonder whether you might just outline in simple terms for everyone what the difference um, essentially
1: is, how to identify the difference. Yes. All right. Thanks, Brian, and thanks, um, attendees, for um, inviting me to speak and... uh, participate again um, I'm, I'm not too sure what happened uh, four weeks or five weeks ago it's not that I've got a, um, a short-term memory loss or a long-term memory loss hopefully it's just that I have so much on but um, basically the first question uh, that you need to decide whether you uh, are going to have a license or a franchise comes back to those four elements in the franchising code uh, clause 4 which very briefly to so take just one minute for the four of them, where you have a written or a verbal agreement or an implied agreement, so that covers most agreements. Secondly, where there's any money at all that you are receiving, which is not the cost, price of training, goods, services or whatever it is. So again, not too many entrepreneurs giving their ideas away, so that's two out of two. Three, where um, you wish the franchisee or the licensee, we'll call them franchisee for a moment here, uh, or require them to use a business name, colour scheme, what we call get-up or set-up, in other words, what a store looks like, a McDonald's for colour scheme and layout, for example, sometimes that sort of thing, where they require them to use any of those things, business name, trademark, logos, sights, smells, all those sorts of things. Uh, and that's very often is because people are, have over the past decade or more realised the value in brands. And then the other two, uh, which are in one section of that four, uh, you have either of these: either the need or requirement to follow a manual or a business plan or a, a system of operating the business. It's actually called a system in the code, um, and it's been taken to be something as simple as a manual, um, even sometimes a training manual, but certainly an instruction manual how to do the business. Or where the parties are required to follow a marketing plan or contribute to a marketing fund. So, if you have four out of those five. Then you have no choice other than to follow the franchise code requirements, and I suppose, bluntly, call it a franchise. You can call it a license if you like, and you can still run it uh, complying with the code if you have four or more of those points. If you don't have four, anything the I tell you uh, and you hear from me today is nothing that you couldn't find out in the public arena, public domain. If you, um, <coughs> if I'm repeating myself occasionally, I'm sorry, or someone interject but. Uh, if you don't have those four, then you can have a license. So that's the, that's the factual sort of makeup, if you like, of either. So the license very often is, and Brian, you can interrupt me if I'm starting to get off the track, but sure. the, license, the license very often is very similar to a franchise document. It still has, for example, uh, things you'd expect, such as a term, obviously parties, might have an exclusive territory, might have a fee to be paid or fees to be paid. Uh, use of confidential information, all that sort of thing isn't contained in a licence as well, but it is a simpler, um, and needless to say we'll come to that, more cost-effective process. But if you have a licence and you're supposed to have a franchise, then as we might have touched on last time, the franchisee could be successful, and probably would be successful with sufficient legal backing, uh, to be able to say, well, I should have had a franchise, you've breached an industry code, um, it's like being, you know, you're either RBT, you're either over the limit or you're not so you've breached that industry code therefore I want all my money back and damages and losses and fees etc etc so that's the downside and ironically since I last spoke to you um, I'm pretty sure uh, I certainly have a colleague in Brisbane who rang me a week ago to see if I could help him because he's too busy and doesn't do much franchising and he has just uh, had someone come to him with an ASIC Um, three months for the party to take their 25 licences apart and reissue them all as franchises or face a substantial fine and they've already been fined. In a similar circumstance, I think about six or eight weeks ago, I was actually quoting to do a person who had nine franchises and I haven't heard back from them yet and they've also been given three months to put it to um, into a franchise. So in broad terms, the test is really the legislative one. Do I have those... Do I require as a franchisor or a or Do I require my franchisees or licensees to have under the four over the four over of those of those elements?
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So I'm I'm a little interested in these examples you brought up. So the ASIC have have
1: have, uh, have learned of or pursued these people? Yes, I'm not sure about the second one, but the first one, um, the or as it was. Um, uh, and uh the licensor as it was, um, had, had a license they had dismissed the licensee and the licensee didn't believe it was um, the right thing to do, so they went to ASIC and complained and ASIC no doubt wouldn't rule on that, but they did look at the system and say that you're breaching the code, find them some money and said give you three months to put your house in order, we'll come back and revisit you with another fine.
0: Right. So so it's fraught with danger there, so I suppose if you have a license, and we'll run into a couple of other bits of details about this, but if you are operating as a licensor and you have licensees, you've got to be very careful that you don't inadvertently almost cross that line and start behaving as if you were a franchise or in other words, providing material or, or, or having requests, which effectively are implying that you're, you're running a franchise. In the point of view of, you know, maybe business plans or marketing plans, and if you request from your licensee, can you give us your marketing plan for the next 12 months or whatever, you you review it and contribute to it, you're really on thin ice there because you may be effectively a de facto franchise.
1: I think so. In fact, yes, there are the the people that just say, we want to do a license regardless and we'll run the risk. And there are people who start off legitimately, as you said, with a a method of doing a business and offering a service and a license, if you like, to other people, and then with a bit of growth and so on, they say, oh, we'll have a go at this and we'll have a go at that, not realising they've crossed one or two of those other boundaries.
0: What's the challenge in converting a franchise a, a, a license into a franchise?
1: I'm sorry, do you say the charge or the, ch- the, the challenge? The challenge, yeah. Um, well, it's not It's not terribly... Some people do it voluntarily. I've got some people at the moment who are probably going to do it voluntarily because they've been skating on thin ice for three or four years. Um, and they are probably going to do it voluntarily. Firstly, of course, you have to get your license fees to agree. Uh, then you have to do franchising documentation and then of course get them signed up. Um, most licensees would agree if their commercial terms don't change. I mean it's as simple as that. If you're being offered supposedly a better product, uh, if you're offered a new car and it's the same car as the old one or even better, then you're probably going to say it's not going to cost me anything, I'll do it, but if it costs me anything I'll sell what I've got. So the usual thing is it has to be sold by licensors who become franchisees to their licensees mm. who become mm. franchisees, mm. but it can be done. I mean, as I said before, if uh, if the franchise, or now to become franchisee, has the same deal as you would have had as a licensee as to money, territory, what business is carrying on and no loss of goodwill and, and no, you know, even rebranding all paid for and so on, if it has to be, but probably wouldn't be, then most people have no trouble in converting their licensees over. I guess most,
0: a lot of licensees would see the benefit in the freedom they've got as a licensee compared with, whilst you may see the security in a franchise, you also
1: can see that you do have certain constraints as a franchise, as a licensee. Um, yes, I would think really that, that uh, the, I would think that the restraints and constraints on a licensee are really no different than on a franchisee in a well-drawn license agreement. Mm. I mean, some people just don't want to go franchising and specifically um tailor their business that way. Now, again, without uh, reaching any uh, pr- privacy, we act for hair-free centres across Australia, and they have since inception, about 2004, been a licence. But they can do it because they have uh, money, they have a document, and they have a trademark and trademarks, but that's where they stop. The machines are, are supplied by third-party supplier who they have no, um, no financial or, or arrangement in at all. It's an independent third party. They do the training, and they don't have a manual. They don't really care um, whether people stay open or what what they do. They have the trademark intellectual property stuff they can enforce. So they have three out of the five, if you like, so that they're quite happy cruising mm. along like that. So it's in, in their case, it's more of a product franchise. It's more. It is a service franchise. but yeah. As I said, they don't. They don't. Um, they just get a flat fee. The you know the whole process is really quite straightforward, and um, it it could be equally be a franchise, but it's been quite successful, 80 or something, um, oh, and growing okay. steadily just by being a license. But they 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 don't do any marketing. For example, they do the, their own marketing if they want to, and they occasionally do. That's the license. Or licensees can buy marketing material at cost. Um, and they don't require any following of a manual. As I said, that's all to do with the, with the company that supplies the very expensive, about $100,000, I think they are, uh, IPL beds. So they give the training and the maintenance of the bed, and they get paid a separate fee in a third-party agreement.
0: All right. Um, so what would you... Someone coming to you. What would you suggest were the benefits of a licence?
1: Well, the benefits of a licence um, usually are... Um, Lack of complexity, lack of compliance with any code, if you like, um, and of course obviously cost, um, and I, I possibly, probably and probably predominantly say in that legal fees, um, Yeah. because they still, we would, we do a bit of licensing, uh, we particularly do a lot of licensing overseas, we just finished one for the Netherlands last week, for a franchise or a month ago, taking uh, products to the Gulf states, uh, they're all licenses. sometimes they're a master franchise offshore, but they're mostly licenses because they can be simpler. Um, but it's the simplicity of the document and the simplicity of having a 20 page document as opposed to you know the, the rather large um, the large pile of documents you have to have with franchising. But I don't think the franchisees suffer. If franchisees do suffer, um, it's probably suffering from what I say and'll probably ask in a minute. That I feel that, and quite rightly, I think that franchises, as a franchisee business or a franchisee business, have higher um, capital gain and higher uh, marketability, and and, and, you know you get more for your money when you come to sell it, and so on.
0: That's right. So there isn't the the same intrinsic sort of built-in goodwill, if you like, in the value of a licence.
1: I think licences are seen to be just like that. They are licensed to do something, whereas a franchise is normally called, you know, full business format or something like Mm. that. Franchise, so. Oh. It's more than it. It has a few extra bells and whistles, if you like, plus formality. Mm. It's a long-term business, effectively, I guess. I think it is, yeah. A lot of licenses do, as I said, maybe for short-term or just, you know. There aren't too many licenses. We probably have out of 30 sort of active franchises across the country, and we're adding sort of, you know, usually one every couple of months. Um, and, you know, the odd one is sold and just drops off. We probably have about three or four licenses and probably 30, 35 franchisees so. Mm. Mm. More people come to us and say we want to go franchising rather than we want to go licensing or franchising. Some do do that but most have already come with a mind set that they want to do franchising and how do they do it and what are the advantages and disadvantages. Okay. Alright.
0: Oh well thanks, thanks very much for that bit of an overview. That's most, most helpful. When we ran through the, um, uh, the schedule last time, we were running through the different items and so forth of the uh, uh, Referred to in the, in the franchise agreement in the schedule, mm-hmm. yeah. and we ran through to um, I think the last item we covered um, was actually intellectual property when we mm. we discussed the aspects of that and then left it there for now. Mm. What I'd like to do is continue that discussion. Mm. Um, and um, the next item was there was the was the franchise system. Um, yeah. Perhaps um, this is an opportunity for you to outline
1: this, get the list of the documents that you provide, typically, for example. Yes, well, well, what we provide as a firm, and I have to be careful not to so, um, make it so specific that it's not general to what, as it were, providers of doc, legal documents generally do, but the most important documents for a franchise, and we'll just leave licensing for a minute, we can cover that in a minute if we have to, in a minute as well, uh, is the disclosure document, which is a document which is required from the Code, um, and if anybody wants to get a copy of the code, you can simply go to Trade Practices, Industry Codes, Regulations, and you'll get the code. And in the back of that, you'll see an extra one. So the disclosure document is just an extra one. It runs to, I think, 22 points, some of them with numerous uh, subheadings and subsections. And so what we have to do is use every question there exactly as it is and give an answer. And my 10-second summation of the disclosure document is: it's a warts and all, if you like. Look at what the franchise is about, who's behind it, have they been to jail, have they been good people, what do they provide, all that sort of thing. So it's a history, 10-year working history of the directors and people involved in the franchise, all that sort of stuff, so that you can sit in front of the fire and easily read it. It's supposed to be like that. It's supposed to give you a, a thumbnail sketch, if you like, or it's a bit small, but it's supposed to give you a. Uh, a full look at the franchise. So, for example, it has in there in Section 6, which is very important, who are all the current franchisees, what are their phone numbers, what's the business they have, what's the name, but when does it start? And that's for the reason that prospective franchisees can call existing franchisees. It then has a section covering the last three years for about seven or eight different things, but principally who's been sort of axed, sacked, left, so on, not renewed. And the full details must be put in there, including why they actually did those things, sacked, left, wasn't renewed, and so on. Um, and again, phone numbers and things can be provided. I won't go into that in too much detail, but they're they're provided, they have to be provided unless the exiting franchisee says they don't want to uh, be contacted. So it gives all that sort of thing. So that's that's a major document, mm-hmm. and the disclosure document. The other major document, the two long, bulky documents, are the franchise agreement. Certainly. Um, and certainly what we do here, just quickly, we tend to sell a suite of documents at a fixed price or if price to be negotiated. Um, and we start off with everything. We start off with some structuring advice to make sure the right entity holds the intellectual property, the right entity is going franchising, that the franchise and their directors are, are protected um, or the intellectual property is protected from court valid court claims or even bankruptcy or liquidation, so it can still all be used and had a few of those. Excuse me. With intellectual property floats away and is reused again, it's not. It's still there. The brands, the logos, the methods, and so on. Then we go through a series of confidentiality agreements for day-to-day use, uh, do intellectual property transfer, intellectual property license, um, and a few things like that. So we tend to end up with 18 or 20 documents. Admittedly, a few of those are one pages, a few of those are four or five, six pages, and a few of those are a couple of those are 10 to 12 pages. And the big ones, the disclosure document, franchise agreement. Can easily end up disclosure documents usually about 40 pages, and in the disclosure document you've all got to also got to put in the triple C franchisees manual now, um, and uh, financials for two years of trading, uh, and a copy of the code. So it becomes a very bulky um, mm. document, the actual disclosure document, as opposed to a single licence which might be 20-25 pages. Mm. Um, needless to say, ones like a mini and ones like a Mac truck, but. Um, uh, you just have to put up with that paperwork if you're going to go franchising.
0: Yes, and it, it, it's increased, isn't it? The, the, the requirements for uh, disclosure and so forth have incrementally sort of increased over the years that the yes. franchise
1: code's been in existence. Yes, they have, it, it has. It hasn't actually... Look, I say to people all along, if you've got nothing to hide and, and mm. there's no reason why you shouldn't disclose and be a franchisor, we've even probably every now and again had a person who's, you know, unfortunately... Uh, gone bankrupt in the last in the last ten years. I've got to disclose that. I've got a very successful franchisor who you know went bankrupt about five years ago on a property deal, but he's, he's he's already owned a franchise and he's got a new one now. He's got about forty franchises in two years on the internet and it's going exceptionally well. Uh, but you know we have to disclose that, so we just yeah. use the correct wording to say what happened to him, but it didn't affect his ability to uh, to be a good businessman.
0: Okay, well,
1: it wasn't dishonesty. So, but um it is really meant. As I said, for potential franchisees, have a good look at things, see who's in there, how many have dropped off in the last three years, which is always a good um, indication in proportion to the current number they've had and that sort of thing.
0: Right, okay. Um, now, the, um, another item that pops up
1: is an intellectual property licence. Yes. Uh, perhaps you could just expand on that briefly. Um, yes, well ideally, um, I mean there's all sorts of things people should be doing in their lives and this is not uh, tied to this uh, discussion in franchising necessarily, um, but ideally in business uh, people should separate their assets from the risk and particularly in, if it's a husband and wife situation as it is often buying a business forgetting about franchising. Ideally, and as so I say in an ideal world one party could own all the assets and the other party would go and buy the business and take all the risk. So when we come to franchising, we try and do the same, we, we, we counsel our clients to do the same in putting all of the 11 herbs and spices, if you like, all of the how to do it, the, the logos, trademarks, the uh, systems, the software, all that sort of stuff, into what's called an intellectual property entity, for the want of a better word, um, and that's usually a company, and that company, which I liken to holding all the all the jewel, jewels in your left hand, if you like, then that company looks at your right hand and says, we will allow you to use all this, but only use them, not own them, to go franchising. So that's what an intellectual property license is. It's a license for the intellectual property holder um, who holds all that valuable information, customer lists, supplier lists, all that sort of stuff, databases, uh, call centre numbers, all that sort of stuff. Um, And it actually allows the franchisee to go to market with it, but not own it.
0: Right, and then in turn, the franchisee an integral part of a franchise agreement is his right to um, uh, to, to, li- to acquire the use of that
1: yes, intellectual property, property as a, li- as a licensee yes, or franchisee. Yeah, 100% right, the, um, uh, as a licensee or franchisee, you quite correctly so Best best practice for a license is to do exactly the same structure, um, so that if, if the franchisor or, or the licensee gets into difficulty or goes into liquidation or has a class action against it, that sort of thing, um then the assets which um, excuse me the things I mentioned, which we broadly call intellectual property, are uh, quarantined if you like, and can't be um, uh, can't be grabbed by the liquidator or whoever it was mm.
0: okay let's skip through some more, more of these items mm-hmm. which are often of interest to people and they are very relevant, particularly as the franchise business grows, so often it's looking forward to anticipate growth um, and significant growth because one can be very easily compromised. For example, one, one item that comes to mind here is the territory. Yeah. Um, I've certainly seen, um, it's not been uncommon for people when they're starting to offer very generous territory areas mm-hmm. and then realise within a period of time that actually, hey, they've they've actually given away the farm and they don't have the ability to be able to subdivide and so forth to get more franchisees in, particularly if a franchise, franchisee is not perhaps totally... Um, utilising the whole area. What's your view on on territories and the approach you should take on Um, that, Simon?
1: Well, territories are something we could talk about for hours, Brian. Mm. I'm sure that no-one has either the time or the interest, but um, there is uh, a prominent view, I suppose, is that uh, people like to have a territory which is um, peculiar or exclusive to them, whether that be one shop in that shopping centre or whether it be a man in a van sort of thing who has an area measured out by postcodes or usually matched much better. Um, but you're quite right, uh, it is difficult. You really have to go backwards. In fact, the Code now requires franchisors to justify in Clause 11 um, how they arrived at their territory. So we have some people at the moment, for example, who are saying, well, a population of 300,000 um, people uh, as residents, not, not businesses or homes, um, gives rise to a, a specific type of franchise where it's not everybody wants the services they have, which are large industrial cleaning. Um, and so they, that's how they've worked it out, and so they therefore divided Australia up into amongst these two. So people have that territory, but there is, you're quite right for start-off, people to get their franchises off the ground, often give territories that are too big. And I was talking to a franchisor who's here this week that we act for Australia-wide, and he's wanting to cut down one of his earlier ones in Sydney because um, he gave the Chapman All CBD Sydney ten years ago um, and now there's room he reckons for another two or three in there. So that's that's got over in a commercial sense. He goes to the franchisee and says, look, we'll work together to divide your area into two or three areas. You'll get the sale price. Uh, we'll put the new people through the system and um, the franchise all grows by a number and the franchisee gets money. So... Uh, then we have other people, uh, the Mortgage Choice people who we don't act for, but Mortgage Choice, for example, and we're doing something similar with a new franchise launching in Brisbane for a, a nationwide removal company, they are saying we will not, in the first five years of the franchise, put more than six removalists of this particular franchise in the Brisbane city area and it's defined. Right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but if we, if we think we need more, we will come to you, the franchisees, and say, look, it's not all working, we're going to put another one or two in, so... That's what mortgage choice do, they say, in the Gold Coast, for example, between now and 2015 or whatever the 10-year period was, or it might have been, we will not put more than a certain number Mm. to meet demand. Um, So you can have exclusive, non-exclusive, you can have all sorts of arrangements, you can have referral systems, non-referral systems, but the basic one really, probably three times out of five, is where there is an exclusive territory. Yes, it keeps it easier, doesn't
0: it? Now, moving on to um, services, in what sort of detail
1: should one define the services that the business is providing? Um, Well, we try to keep that fairly generic so that franchisors, in fact, with our wording, if we one of those types of things, has a generic catch-all of the end. So it might be A, B, C and D, which is specific about, and then says, any other or further service which the franchisor notifies to the franchisee in the manual or by variation of the franchise agreement during the term, which all of that means exactly what it says, Anything they want to add that they think can be of you know use, or the franchisee can, can carry on. Oh, I see, so clearing. adding
0: value. So, if, for example, yep. it we're a carpet cleaning franchise, and they said, "Well, we're going to include blind cleaning." Yes. Then that would be that, that would
1: that would meet the criteria, and could yes, incorporate but again, it. Again, these things you don't have to. I mean, most people, as you implied, would probably get it pretty right because they say, "Well, we're doing carpet cleaning. That's it." But. Um, it's a very very simple method. People get carried away with how complex things can be or should be sometimes. Exactly. But we just say to people, "That's easy. If you're going to have, um, let's say, as an authorised service, you're going to have blind cleaning, you just change the definition of franchised business, or change the add an authorised service by way of a very two, simple two-page variation, and off they go." Um, so the, the list of all trial services is, is really just to make sure that they do do what they're supposed to be doing and not, for example, you know, selling hamburgers if they've got a right. carpet franchise or whatever. And,
0: and then you also go into a little bit of detail in some cases with, with regards to uh, sales inquiries or leads from the point of view of whether the franchisor or the franchisee is responsible for
1: them, particularly, you know, say, a home or a business service delivery franchise, for example. Yes, well, again, I mean, but, but I did say this last time, I'm sure, but I say to people when they come in and want to talk about franchising and probably speak to someone in this, an hour or two, probably every fortnight, who comes in, some decide not to go ahead and that's fine, we're happy to offer that service usually for an hour or two at no cost to people, but um, I usually say to them, well, they say, what do we bring? And I say, an open mind, and I and they say, when I get in, they, I tell them that the rule is there's no rules, so... Mm. obviously it's got to comply legally, but it's the same with um, custom, customer call centres, rather uh, lead generation, all that sort of thing. It's what the franchisor thinks is fair and reasonable, what will also recompense the franchisor for, for lead inquiries and costs, and, uh, and how it will all work. So you have some people, um, have one franchise who allows 20 leads a week at no cost, thereafter the people pay them, uh, some people run a 1-800 number and just incorporate and carry the cost and put it out in a geographic method or a 1-300 the way that works. So it's all, um, that's just a matter of, um, a matter of what the franchise or considers will work and we're just doing, um, for a company that went broke, a public company, we're acting for a chap who's bought two arms of it without naming it and he's, um, actually got, which we often see as well, a customer response Specifications. So basically it's a service type industry, um, and, and you have to uh, respond to the customer within 24 hours, of the first inquiry, and then within a further 72 hours you have to do this, and within a further 7 days you've got to have delivered and installed the product if the person wants it. So those are just timelines within which um, they require their, you know, the their, their services to be offered. Mm, so they're fairly strict performance criteria, Well, they are, but they're to keep people going. Otherwise, you Mm. get people being lazy, and the phone rings, and they say we won't, we won't answer that, or we're too damn busy to. to, So they they make sure that people, uh, and they have fallback positions. If people are too busy, they can then go to the franchisee next door and and ask him to assist and that sort of thing. So
0: So these sort of items, like the you know the performance criteria, are fairly critical from the point of view of the franchisee um, and the franchise agreement, because if he doesn't comply with these he's running the risk of, of, uh, uh, of a
1: serious infringement, isn't he? Yes. The, the customer response things, would we normally look at different for the minimum performance criteria, but you're quite right. Minimum performance criteria is now recognised in the Code as being a valid requirement of franchisors, and that usually relates to, not always, but it usually relates to gross income of the franchised business. So very often people don't have to meet any targets in the first three months or something, but thereafter they supposed to have achieved a certain number of sales or a certain value of sales of goods sold or or in, in plain terms, in a shop, you know, once a month they've got to do $10,000 gross income or whatever. Um, but as I say to franchisors and to franchisees, it's a very brave franchisor that would enforce minimum performance criteria and throw a franchisee out. Most people would bend over backwards, most franchisors, and most franchisors are good franchisors. And... Um, and they realize, you know, sometimes markets are good and sometimes they're bad. So they would try and help the franchisee, but there also are some franchisees who just don't want to help, just yes. don't want to be helped. They just get negative about their business, as they would if they owned a the business. They don't get negative just because it's a franchise, or if they're going to, they'd usually get negative a hell of a lot later in a franchise than they would in normal standalone business. But, so minimum performance criteria is important. It needs to be thought out. It needs to be enough of a, um prod to keep the franchise going but not so much that they lie awake at night and say so we're not going to reach the minimum performance criteria that's why it needs to be averaged over a number of months or a fairly long period and not just one bad week or two or four bad weeks in every you know, two months or something.
0: Mm. We, we touched um, previously on intellectual property and so forth mm. um, and uh, we've also moved now in just into business names and uh, the registration of business names is one that's sometimes confused, confusing for people from the point of view of getting protection um, nationwide, for example, in the early days of a business um, by the appropriate registrations that you need to do, either with um, all of the uh, individual state departments uh, yes. of fair trading or uh, by forming a proprietary limited company and protect, protecting the name nationally that way. Hmm.
1: What, what's your views on that from the yeah. point of well, view of well a new you franchisor? Yes, unfortunately, Australia, because of its state system, has an extra... Uh, leg that most a lot of places don't have, Um, but you people should remember that the the predominant or the the most important thing to get is your trademark or a trademark, excuse me, with a name, whatever it is. Trademarks take precedence over companies which take precedence over, excuse me, business names. Um, So the business name is really worth nothing. Um, And you do, as you quite correctly say, apply for those in the Office of Fair Trading. Now to apply for those in every state in Australia, it's not expensive, but you do have to have a, a an address, and you do And most of them have to say you're opening within three months or six months or something like that. And on average, I think a three-year fee and the application can be done by, we've some clients, very few ask us to do it, and we say we won't because we're too expensive. Um, but you can do it yourself. I think it's about $300 for three years in, in nearly every state. Um, and, and that's what apprentices or should do. A lot of them don't. Um, and then they find they want to go in a couple of months, a couple of years' time, say, to Victoria. We had a franchise that did that, and someone had already registered the business name. Now, they had a trademark and were able to put enough pressure on to say that we have the trademark for that name remove it. but it was an unnecessary step, whereas if they'd um, tried and got the business name, most people have relatives and that sort of thing in, mm. a, in, a, in a state to use as a, an address, and um, I don't want this to be repeated, but I dare say, I guess, anyway, That the office of fair trading don't have people going out every three months and knocking on the doors saying have you started business yet? They may, (laughs) I don't know. But um, we've got one or two people who have in fact done just that this year. They've said, "Look, we'll give you a little bit of money, and um, you just go and do all." So we do the whole sort of seven or eight states in one day, and it costs about two and a half thousand. they paid thousands or so, six or eight hundred for the girls to do it over a couple of days, and they're, they're all there for three years and they're sitting there ready to go. I feel that that's best practice, but easier to yeah. get than done sometimes. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, it's interesting because, I mean, the the case study that always comes to mind for me is Hungry Jack's, which, of course, is Burger King. Yes, that's But they I mean. couldn't register that name here. Jack Cowan, when he established it, uh, found that somebody else already had the name registered. So yes. they had to come up with another name, which uh, was, was quite interesting. And I, I know when I was at Bed Shed, the retail bedding group in WA, many years ago in the early 80s, we couldn't operate in... Uh, in Queensland mm. um, or in um, the Northern Territory, under that name because somebody had it registered, so yeah. we changed the name to Bedpost. So it can be it can be quite an inconvenience because your marketing material and so on and so forth, and the the brand mm. becomes lost in the consumer's eyes. Oh, yes, uh, it is yeah.
1: important. It is, and it's unfortunate. It's just the situation because of the states in Australia. If there weren't any states, uh, for example, New Zealand is a lot simpler in a lot of ways. Mm. Uh, but they don't even have a business name procedure. They don't have a registered business name procedure for oh, really? yeah. Um So people over there can register themselves as such and such, in the town down the road they can be, well say don't register. They just hang the name up, and I suppose it's then subject to the party that was there first to say you're passing off, as it were, as the legal mm. word uh, as me when you're not me. A question a lot of
0: people ask me. They, they assume there's a figure that's already predetermined for a franchise fee, mm. and of course, the franchise fee is whatever you choose to make it, from a commercial business point of view. Um, any any comments from that point of view?
1: Um, any, you know, know, from
0: your side of the fence?
1: Uh, well, yes and no. It's a question that, you s- quite correctly, is very often asked, or have even been books written on it. Um, but really. I sort of look at it very roughly, perhaps in 60 seconds, to say that if it's, let's say, if it's, a, it's a mums and dads operation. If you look at what the working wage, the average wage, whatever that is at the moment, for uh, people in, let's say, semi-skilled to unskilled, with great respect, to um, so say they might expect to be paid if they were working 40 hours a week, uh, you know, 60,000, 70,000, or 80,000 between the two of them. I'm not sure really, uh, without being misinterpreted. Um so you'd look at that they would have to earn that type of money and then they've got some money they're putting some money into that's risk money that they could probably get twenty percent on if they lent it to a, a, a person that they think they may lose it. And you sort of add those bits and pieces up and, and see how long it's gonna take them to get their income back. And most franchises always look at getting your franchise fee back within sort of one or two years. So there aren't too many franchises that hit the hit the hit the field running for less than about thirty or forty thousand for a one person washing dog type of thing and we used to act for the biggest dog watcher in Australia for fourteen years till they sold for many millions from one, one dog wash to about hundred and seventy um, mobiles and they they were they worked on those types of things. So they were charging sort of about thirty five thousand plus a trailer plus training at about fifty and people could expect to earn about forty to forty five thousand gross. It wasn't a large amount. Hmm. Probably more these days, they sold out in two thousand and five, but um, so it's very, very hard, but I some people say, I oh, will charge a lesser amount. My answer to that is, well, if you're charging a lesser amount, you're probably going to go broke. That's but right. You've got to charge enough as a franchisor, not only to cover your cost but to make profit, because being a franchisor is hard work until you get the numbers up. Right, hmm. um, yeah. But you can't go straight to the market just at, you know, half a million dollars or something as well because it is blue sky at that stage until you start to get some runs on the board.
0: Exactly. Look, I think it's critically important. You've got to look at who your competition are because at the end of the day, it's just like selling, you know, it, it's mm. no different to a retail business selling a product. Yeah. It's going to be
1: compared. People yeah. shop around. It's just like selling a television set, really. Exactly. Um, I think that really, it's, you know, I agree 100%, but I think the other thing is really to look at what, the projected return is, and if you've been in business, if you've had the business for a year, or two or three, you would know that. Um, I'm saying any person, any potential franchisee, not too many franchisees just suddenly wake up and go to the market. There are the odd one or two, but very percent perhaps, but most people have had a business or been in a business or something for a few years, so they know sort of what the overheads are, they know where their market are, they know how much they're expecting to net after and before wages and so on. And uh, then they can sort of adjust that. So, as I said before, the person should be expected to earn, to, to get a return on their money, and also get a wage.
0: Mm. Um,
1: and if they're expected to do that, then you can almost charge that first year's income on the basis that, you know, if it is sixty or seventy thousand less their expenses, they, you might charge forty or fifty thousand to get into a one or a one and a half person business.
0: Yep. Plus, no.
1: your, plus your training, plus exactly you know, computer software, plus you know equipment, whatever that might be, and motor vehicle and so on.
0: Another area people tend to overlook um, until, they, until it's drawn to their attention is the need to specify quite carefully the insurances that a franchisee needs
1: to affect. Yes. Yeah, well, I, I mean, the best, the best franchisors do go into that in some detail, and I know we're doing a lot in, say, three quarters of an hour or an hour here, which you talk about for, we talk, it would take two or three months to set up a franchise normally, which might be 20 hours talking with a franchise or at various stages during that yeah. and doing documents and reviewing them with them and so on. But um you're quite right and the good franchiseors do research what um the Franchise franchisee needs and that's by way of insurances, licenses, permits, all that sort of thing, not just say we'll oh, go go off and see your insurance breaker, run down to the council knock on the door and say I'm running a dog wash, what do I have to have and so on. So insurance, you're quite right, is, is important. The franchise needs to know what the insurance risks might be and the bigger insurance the bigger franchise as you're aware the listeners may well be, usually have an arrangement uh, with a franchise company uh, for a sort of what I might call a global policy for all their franchisees.
0: Mm, which yep. means
1: two things. One, much easier to get the insurance. Perhaps three things. One, it's easier to get the insurance because the company already knows all about the business. Two, to make a claim. And three, premiums are usually down.
0: And it's critically important here that um, for a franchisor to ensure these covers are effective because there are areas which are a bit grey, perhaps, um, when you look at public liability and workers' comp and these sorts of things. um, In the event there is an issue Mm. and the franchisee is not covered, uh, there can be cases where it can be quite
1: difficult for the franchisor. Yes, the Code actually foresees this in one of its more enlightened moments. um, In in one of the franchisors, what I call the seven deadly sins, one of the franchisors' seven automatic rights to... um, sorry, to... uh, (coughs) to, um, terminate a franchise and I mean by terminating immediately within minutes of being handed to it not 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 a remedial or remediable um, is in fact not holding a necessary license or permit or authority to carry on the business mm. it is not insurance but it goes to that other stage of things that I said the licenses or the permits so that's seen as being so serious by the government uh, the watchdogs that that is a, um, a that's immediately terminable franchise you lose your whole business.
0: Right. Okay. Moving into some other, just quickly through some of the other key areas, the marketing fees, mm. um, which are defined quite clearly under the code, mm. and the requirements from the point of view of auditing and so forth. Yes. Um, what's your view on those, Ivan?
1: Well, marketing is always a bit of a problem. Particularly, we're talking mostly here, obviously, about start-up franchises. Sure. I guess. So, mostly, most, of course, always don't start up a marketing fund until they've got a. A number, let's say five or ten or something like that, because otherwise if I'm the first franchisee and Brian doesn't come along as the second for four years, I'm contributing and the amount will be so small, uh, that it won't be much use, but it'll build up and everyone else will get the benefit. That's just general. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but most okay. franchise always require, depending on the franchise, and we're talking here perhaps middle of the road stuff, not like McDonald's, Subway, so no. on, but they require normally the franchisee to spend an amount in local area marketing for, for a start. Outback Jacks, which is a chain we look after, they've got about 26 restaurants going about four years. And when they started, they had a local area marketing of 2%. Right. Um, uh, it might have been 3%. Now they still have to do 2%, but 2% also goes into a national marketing fund. So they introduced that marketing fund, which is uh, subject, as you said, to the um, provisions of the code as to auditing and handling it and so on. And that's that's what most is they get to the stage that they... and then they might cut out the local area marketing altogether eventually... Uh, Zorafis Coffee, for example, did that at about 20. They had local and ordinary, and now they're 4% um, of marketing, of gross income into marketing, which the French franchisor looks after, and 1% is for um, promotional products and things, either in or outside the stores.
0: Right. Um, terms, renewal terms are a point of interest, and there's been a little bit of uh, discussion about these in recent years with regards to... Western Australia and Jack Carroll and that sort of thing, um, but renewal terms need to be clearly specified, don't
1: they? Yes. Um, I look, I, I, my attitude to that is that you can give. Why not give the franchisee as long as you like? Because bluntly, most franchisors will want to turn their franchise over, whether it's one year, five years, ten years, or 20 years after they actually started it. But, but a, life, a lifetime for a franchisor is very often between five and 10 years. So. I've got a French store coming in at 2 o'clock who I mentioned before to discuss things like this uh, they've just bought another chain and right. they're, they're mm-hmm. stuck with 5 years plus 5 years and I said well why don't you give these people because you want to sell them some higher fees give them another 15 years instead yes, of 5 yeah. years yeah. Um, they then see the ability to build it up and pass it on with some good good time left or good value in time left to a new franchisee come purchaser and it doesn't do the franchisee any harm when they come to sell as well because they could say to the, to the buy, buying or new franchisee, look, we've got 50 out there, and they've got between you know five years and 15 years to run with their uh, with their renewals, rather than sort of count them down so many months and so many years. Exactly.
0: Mm. Um, one other question um, is uh, that people often ask is that there's a misunderstanding as to how tightly you can enforce a sort of re- restraint non-competitive clause from the point of view of a franchisee leaves leave your organisation sets up in competition. Now there are scaled restraint periods that are generally set. Can you just mention the sort of uh, the, the process behind that or the reasoning for it?
1: Um, yes, <coughs> yeah, what you're talking about is called cascading clauses and they're just like that, they're like a waterfall. So for example for the area it might say that you can't um, work in the territory after you've, uh, the franchisee, after he's terminated, um, the territory of any other franchisee 5 kilometres outside your territory, 50 kilometres outside your territory, the whole of the state, just for example, then it might say, what's the period? You put something like 6 months, 1 year, 2 years, 5 years, and so on. That, that is there for a legal reason which I won't go into and it's quite detailed, but it basically allows the court, if there is an argument, to say that, uh, Brian as the franchisee has told Ivan as the franchisee it has to be 5 years and the whole of the country, that's uh, by, by choosing those cascading lines. Whereas we're prepared to say it can be the whole of a country but only three months or five years and just within the territory. So in other words, it gives the court the ability to manipulate the case about 20 years ago when the court said we'd love to help you but we can't, there isn't the option in the agreement. But in practical terms, which is far more important, um, I, and I know quite a lot about restraint because we're always either enforcing it or arguing it with people and even sometimes in court, um, the basic rule in one sentence is that the law uh, in Australia, generally, I used to practice in Asia, but the law generally will not um, stop a person, we're talking about one person, a person carrying on what they've been trained for, whether they learnt that training by way of an apprenticeship or something more formal, or whether they learnt it by way of being a franchisee. So they, if you learn to cook burgers as a McDonald's franchise manager, let's say, or owner, for five years of franchisee and you learnt that trade, they can't stop you then going right next door and doing the same thing, but it can stop you obviously calling yourself McDonald's and having Donald McLeod or, <laughs> or whatever it is. And I'm being stupid, but it, it stops you yeah, using no, it's intellectual right. property, the passing off. But it doesn't, it can't stop you using your skills, which franchises often jump up and down about, but it's as simple as that. Um, and really, that is, people like to argue and spend lots of money with restraints, and lawyers give, I think, some very fudgy answers often to benefit their own fee structure but it's as simple as that If it's we do quite a lot of debadging I'm somewhat of an expert on that, um, that. and that is when franchise come to us and say we want to carry on the same business even in the same territory how can we do it and it can be done with Touchwood, we've been doing that for more than 20 years, we debadged um, uh, 9 in the one chain out of 15 uh, about 7 years ago over about a year, Not very popular with the franchise all but never mind um, and it's just a matter of being able to do it but it, it was a, a move away from everything that that French did by adding extra services which you mentioned before it was a man in a van different types of color scheme adding extra territories adding extra products different uniforms you can imagine all the changes that have to be made um, and then it, then the person basically goes in one door a certain color and comes out the other almost but um, so but the short answer is the restraints uh, can be enforced, but they can only be enforced when the franchisee is using your intellectual property.
0: Mm. Well, uh, that's why I appreciate your contribution and your knowledge, Ivan, because these sort of case studies help enormously when you're trying to frame up the protection mm. of a new franchisor, yes. because being aware of those types of things means you can you can plug the gap
1: before it occurs sort of thing yes. in, in many respects. I mean, yes, you can do it. We've just spent quite a long time with a new franchise or um, and we spent a lot of time, and I mean two or three hours, I suppose, which seems a lot of time, but two or three days, perhaps longer, in actually making a, a restraint business um, definition, which is a bit usual. Usually we just make it the franchise business and that it looks like it, but because this is a business consulting business and quite successful in two or three countries, and it's based here in Australia we I was given the job of rewriting all their documents and now I do their work but um, over the last few months. But this we so we, we sat down and thought of all the little nuts and bolts that actually make up their the businesses that they didn't want people to be in and then put a if you like that was a marshmallow then we put several coatings of different coloured chocolate around the outside <laughs> what um, are your analogies <laughs> yeah, so, so that the, really the, it's, it's really very very tight now um, that people can't just say well we're doing this because you know it's, it's a different business so
0: ok I appreciate that look there's a handful of other items but they're not really for discussion now because they tend to be very much a decision that's commercial and are mm. calculated as much by one's spreadsheets with budgets and reference to your accountant and so on and yes. um, those are things like Your renewal fees and what you set those as. So they're a commercial reality, but you shouldn't, you should be aware of the fact that there is the opportunity to charge a renewal fee and there's an opportunity for income.
1: Very Um, much,
0: And similarly with the transfer fee, Mm -hmm. uh, there's another one that uh, a lot of people are not conscious of and they've become fairly common these days, but they used to be quite unusual going back, um, you know, a decade or two ago.
1: Um, And then
0: others such as training costs and so forth um, are uh, are also areas where one needs to do a bit of homework to make sure that you're getting your um, I think getting the value mm-hmm. from the sale of your franchise and your ongoing revenue
1: opportunities. Yes, particularly with training. I mean, I put training into three classes. Initial is what people should be getting for their franchise fee. It's obviously added in and ends up in the bottom line. But you should get your training for nothing. Um, Secondly, you get ongoing training, that should basically be for nothing because that's what the service fee is for, or the, some people call it a royalty. But we do have an additional training fee, which is not very often used, but it's really just when the franchisee doesn't know, wakes up and doesn't know how to turn on the computer which side to put his shirt on, and he keeps on ringing up to find out, well then the franchise all can say, well we're now going to give you a day's training to teach you these things, it's going to cost you X dollars, so. But um, you're quite right, uh, service fee, it's always been there. Renewal fees has certainly have been very common in the last 10 years. Mm. Every franchise now has a renewal fee. Well, every now and again you see someone that doesn't want to charge it, but that's very, very unusual. And transfer fee, quite right, when the franchisee decides to sell Sally has to have the franchisor's consent, like the old key money, which is illegal now <laughs> to landlords, but it's not, an, it's not a fee. And that's why I say to people, the rule is there's no rules. There's nothing to say that you have to have these fees. There's nothing to say that it can't be... Uh, absolutely outrageous charge, unless, of course, the franchise won't buy your franchise. But um, So all of those things are flexible and a lot of people now are making service fees and things, if they're fixed, they make them grow up 5% a year, or CPI, there's a recent case I mentioned about six or seven years ago where um, a company wanted to put up their, their service fees by CPI and they did it and the franchisees took them to court and the court held that that was quite reasonable. Uh, for the franchise to do that even though it wasn't in the franchise agreement. So it's understood that fixed fees particularly, um, should grow, percentage fees should grow of course because if you're paying 5% of a thousand and the next year you're paying, you're earning 2,000, you pay 5% of it, the franchise or gets the increased benefit that you've earned more money, so.
0: Yeah, and there is there's always with with CPI increases. There's always the risk there because periods of high inflation and periods of low inflation yeah. will reflect accordingly. But that's um, that, that. At least means there is one measurable uh, way of doing it. Yeah. Okay. All right. What I'd like to do is thank you very much for that exhaustive right um, summary, no. Ivan, and no. ask no. if there are currently any questions. If anyone has a question, if you just press star six, and then raise the question, we'll address it for you now. Give you a couple of seconds just to do that. No-one's come on the line immediately. Well, what I'd like to suggest is, uh, by all means, drop, um, drop, drop uh, us at support here at How to Franchise Simply an email, or give me a call, send me a text, and we'll address any questions you do have. And uh, as you move down the track, we've got the opportunity to speak to, uh, to Ivan in more detail. So, Ivan, I'd like to just wrap up by thanking you very much for your time. I do appreciate it. Uh, I right, know you're well, thank very you. busy. It's,
1: it's, thanks, thank you for the invitation. And look
0: forward to keeping in
1: touch. All right, that's fine. Thank you very much, Brian. Thanks thank, for you. thank you all listeners. Thank you. All right, bye. Thanks, Arden.